With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The new motto for the third biggest sporting event in the world is change starts with sport, representing the transformational impact the Paralympics has had on society. The motto for the Tokyo Games, revealed before the postponement of the Paralympics to 2021, is united by emotion. And in so many ways, this perfectly sums up where the event is at the moment. Despite the certainty of the delay, the uncertainty remains about whether the event will take place next summer. This is episode 20 of Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy, where we speak to the leading British men and women working behind the scenes of sport. I'm John. And I'm Michael. John and I have covered the games in London and Rio, contrasting in the extreme. But thanks to the superstar athletes, their stories, their performances and the determination of the International Paralympic Committee, the Paralympics are now an integral part of our sporting calendar. But like so many other sporting events, can the organisers beat the threat of COVID-19, drug cheats, rising costs? Let's ask the man whose job it is to do just that. Hi, I'm Craig Spence, the IPC's Chief Brand and Communications Officer. Firstly, Craig, congrats on 10 years at the International Paralympic Committee. From PR for Yorkshire Water via the Rugby Football League, is this something that you always wanted to do? It's, it's been an interesting pathway, yeah. I mean, uh, 10, 20 years ago, I was promoting tap water and sewage treatment uh, in my uh, native Yorkshire. Then I spent three years working at the Rugby Football League. And I'll be honest, when I, when I applied to be uh, the communications senior manager, I think it was back then at the IPC, I never really knew about the Paralympics. And I remember vividly in my interview with Sir Philip Craven when he, when he said in his Bolton accent, what do you know about the Paralympics, I'm lad? My reply was, oh, no, nothing. And that's why I think I can do a job for you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was a complete uh, change for me. I've always wanted to work in sport communications. But to, to move away from my family and friends and move to Germany, uh, it was one of the biggest challenges of my life, but one that I've relished every single day since, since joining the great organisation. And, and you mentioned being in Bonn in Germany. How is it as a, a proud Yorkshireman being in, in Germany? 
Well, it's a bit different to Leeds, my home city. Uh, it's a very small uh, city, very green, um, very conservative, I think I would say. It's a, it's a town of around a quarter of a million people. Uh, but it's got an amazing infrastructure. Obviously, it was the former capital of West Germany before the wall came down. So the services here are, are great. And it's a stunning city next to the River Rhine. Uh, and, and some of the big cities of Germany, like Cologne and Frankfurt, are only 45 minutes away. And Craig, our paths first crossed when you were at the Rugby Football League. I was working for Yorkshire Radio at the time. What was it, though, that made you want to work in sport so much? I don't know. I mean, previously, when I was a kid, I played rugby league all my life up until the age of 18. So I always wanted to break into uh, sport communications. I think as anyone who has ever been involved in sport as a kid and maybe does a PR degree, they want to work in sport. So um, I actually got my first break in sport when I was working for a PR agency in Leeds, uh, just by accident. I was working on a, a, a Yorkshire bank account promoting mortgages. At the same time, one of my colleagues was doing the PR for Tetley's, who at the time were the sponsor of Super League. So I managed to get involved in there. And then Empower, who was one of my clients as well, they started sponsoring the English cricket team and Test cricket. And that's how I got into sport. And it's flourished from there. But I never thought that I'd end up being in charge of running the third biggest sport event in the world, which is the Paralympics today. I mean, sometimes I do have to pinch myself, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a great honour to work for such a fantastic organisation that uses sport to effectively change the world. What was it then about that job advert for the job at the IPC, the role at the IPC that attracted you? The challenge. Absolutely the challenge. I, I've always liked challenger brands in life when I've been working on communications. And this for me was, for me it was like, why is this sport not getting more publicity? Why do not more people know about the Paralympics? I mean, when I... When I joined the IPC, I could name three Paralympians, Oscar Pistorius, Ellie Simmons and Tani Gray-Thompson, who retired in 2004. Now, that wasn't right. And it, I, for me, it was a movement that just deserved more profile. And uh, I, I applied for the job, met with the, the leadership at the IPC and was excited. And I think they believed, I believed in their vision and they believed in what I thought I could deliver for the team. We often ask our great British bosses whether they're fans of the sport that they help run. Do you think actually the fact that you didn't know that much about it was beneficial? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, I'll be honest. Uh, they always say you should never work with your, you should never meet your heroes. And when I worked for the Rugby Football League, it was an experience that I didn't particularly enjoy. It wasn't as, as what I thought it would be. Um, working for the IPC is completely the opposite because at the end of the day, I have to convince myself to start with because so, I knew nothing about what I was promoting effectively. And if I thought, well, if this idea is going to work for me, then it's going to work for others who I'm trying to introduce to the Paralympic movement. And anyone who works with me will always tell you that my litmus test for whether the idea works or not is my parents because they, know, they knew nothing about the Paralympics. So I'll always run things by them. If they think it's good, then we tend to go with it. So uh, it's, it's good to have that audience to test key things on. And what would you say is the biggest change that you've made or the biggest success? And that's a, a big question in 10 years. There's probably a, a number that you could go through. But what do you think is, is the, the biggest change or success that you've made? I think the biggest thing we had to do, I mean, when I joined, there was no comms whatsoever. There was one person doing everything. I think they did one story a week on the website. But the key thing that I think I probably had to change was repositioning Paralympic sport. So I think a lot of people perceive Paralympic sport as 
lots of persons with disabilities just getting together and having a runaround. They didn't really see it as competitive or high performance sport. So the first thing I did when I joined was when I looked at some of the times and the performances, I mean, you've got people who are running on, on, on running blades who are running probably faster than 99% of the whole world. So when you start to look into the figures and show the evolution of the world record, especially in the last 15 years since it's become full-time uh, training, you realize that we've got something very special at, the, at people's fingertips and, and promoting Paralympic sport like any other sport. So looking at the rivalries of the athletes such like and building upon that, having this, the, the previous background I had in sport from working on, on sports sponsorships and at the RFL, that helped at the, the IPC because it's similar tactics that you bring in, similar strategic uh, approach. And so far, it seems to have worked. Does that mean, Craig, it's time that we move on from the narrative of talking about Paralympians being inspirational and, and brave? Because Hannah Cockcroft is training just as hard as Dina Asher-Smith, working just as hard as Katerina Johnson-Thompson. Just because she's in a wheelchair, that doesn't change her achievements, does it? Yeah, I, I, I hate the analogy of, oh, you're brave as a Paralympian, but it sometimes does work for certain athletes. I mean, you take... Great Britain's first uh, Paralympic gold medalist, Kelly Gallagher. She's vision impaired and she skis, skis down a hill at 90 miles an hour, guided by a guide. <laughs> that, 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 that really does need some uh, bravery to go down there. But someone being in a wheelchair, why is that brave? Someone opening a door for you in a wheelchair, that's not brave or inspirational. Now, I'm inspired by any athlete, whether they're in a wheelchair, vision impaired or they're able-bodied. A great sport and performance inspires you to do other things, whether it's Jessica Ennis, Dean Rasher-Smith or Hannah Cockcroft. You are inspired by sport and Paralympic sport is absolutely no different. And um, what I admire most in our athletes is the resilience. They really are the most resilient human beings on this planet who, who don't take no for an answer. They see a challenge as an opportunity to do something differently and innovate. And, and the dedication and determination to become the best possible human being you can be is what I admire most. Obviously, as we're recording this interview, we should all be in Tokyo at the Paralympics, but we have postponed it for 12 months. Are you confident that the Paralympics will take place in 2021? I'm not going to say confident, but what I would say is I'm, I'm encouraged. Um, I mean, had the Games been happening now, there's no way that have been going ahead. Uh, you look at the way COVID is in the world. Um, what I'm why I'm encouraged, though, is you look at the fact that there are there is sports events happening now around the world, whether it's the Champions League that came to a climax in Portugal, the, Euro uh, the Europa League that came to a climax here in Germany. Sport is back happening, and in some countries there's crowds. And we've got another 12 months to get things right. So now... We're working hard to, to look at all the various scenarios that we may face. I mean, the world has completely been turned upside down in eight months. But now we know what we're dealing with. Uh, and now we're working hard together with the IOC, Tokyo 2020, Tokyo Metropolitan Government to get the games on. And the fact is that we've been working on these games for, for, for eight years or more since the bid phase through the planning phase. You don't want to see that hard work come to nothing and looking at it from an athlete point of view, they've been preparing this for years. They've sacrificed so much to perform to the best at these games. We've got to do everything we can to get the games on. And, and our focus is on the things that we can control as opposed to those that we can't. You mentioned that there are sports taking place, and there are, but there's not a lot of Paralympic sport taking place. How much of an issue is that for qualification for the athletes? 
Well, we've seen in the last last month we've seen more competitions in well we've seen more we've seen more sport in the last month than we had the last seven months. So we're starting to see sport. There was a, a meeting in Switzerland, athletics meeting at the weekend. There was some British competition at the weekend. Uh, two weeks ago, there was a competition in here in Leverkusen in Germany for athletics and one in Poland. So para sport is back, uh, even if it's a lot smaller than it was. Um, we are working on every single scenario as it is. So we've had to redo the whole qualification criteria for Tokyo for all 22 sports, working with our international federations. And now we just have to plan every single scenario. It's not a case of plan A, plan B, plan C. We're on to plan Z. We have to plan for every single scenario that may happen between now and the games. But we're confident that no matter what is thrown at us, we can get the games on, we can get the athletes classified and we can get the athletes qualified. And we want the games not just to happen with 10 or 20 countries. We want it to be a universal game with all 180 national Paralympic committees that we have in Tokyo showing the world the best of parasport. If the Olympics happens, Craig, which is basically a test event for the Paralympics, we always say that, will the paras definitely happen? Because, you know, coronavirus, isn't there even more of a risk for the athletes because of the underlying health conditions? But if the Olympics happens, will the Paralympics definitely happen? The Games, the Olympics and Paralympic Games come as a pair. Two separate events as part of one festival of sport. So the games will happen if the Olympics happen. Now, um, everyone keeps saying, oh, but, but, but athletes are more likely to catch COVID. There's no research that shows that. Now, there's probably as much chance as you and I catching COVID as, as a person with a disability. It's just if, if a person with a disability catches COVID, the impact is going to be different. Um, and we're working with all our medical professions to see how, how that impact is. But what we've got to do is look at the risks how can we mitigate those risks? I mean, our number one priority is the welfare and health of athletes at the Paralympic Games next year. If we don't think we can put on a safe Games, then the Games won't happen. And that's why the Games aren't happening right now. But what we've got is 12 months to plan, work our backsides off to ensure that the Games do take place and there's a great showcase of power sport. So bearing in mind what Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson has been saying this weekend, her comments about not seeing the Paralympics for eight years would have a, a big impact, funding would potentially break down and places where there wouldn't be any sports development. In your plans A to Z, is there a plan for what happens if, if 2021 doesn't take place in terms of the future of parasport that you and your colleagues have worked so hard to build up to where it is now, the third biggest event, as you say? I think all our energies are focused on getting the games on. I mean, yes, at the back of our mind, it's the what-if scenario, but what we want to do is, is channel all our energies to getting these games on because it's what the world wants. Now, if the games don't happen next year, it's not just going to have an impact on the, the Paralympic movement. If the Olympics don't happen, then there's going to be a dramatic impact on the Olympic movement and the relevant international federations that focus into the Olympics. Same if the uh, UEFA European Championships don't happen next year. Sport will struggle if it doesn't, if it's effectively put on pause for two years. So we're channeling all our efforts and, and all our team's energies are on, let's work our backsides off to mitigate every single risk so that we can get these games on safely so that athletes can come and be confident about their health and well-being and put on a great showcase of sport for the world. Because I think 
if we can get the games on next year, it's going to be a tremendous spectacle. It'll be like the light at the end of the tunnel. If we can fly people in from all over the world, then it'll be an amazing affair. And, um, and I think our athletes will be really determined to put on a show for the rest of the world. Are you prepared to do it behind closed doors? I think our priority is to get the, the games on with spectators. Um, I think if you, if, if you look at the success of, say, Beijing, London, Rio, part of that experience was the crowd and the, the amazing interaction between the athletes and the fans. So we'll do as much as we can to get spectators into the venues. Now, in Japan, they've already got spectators watching J-League football and baseball and such like. And I think at the moment, it's up to 5,000 fans. They, they're hoping to go up to 50% of the venue in October. So we want to get fans into the stadium. Now, I, I go back to what I said at the start. We're focusing on things we can control. Now, if someone turns around to us and says, no spectators, then we're going to have to accept that. Because there's health authorities consulting with us on a daily basis. But what we'll do is do everything we can to try and get spectators into venues and ensure that they're in an environment where their health and well-being isn't put at jeopardy. So we're, we're working hard to get the games on and hopefully have spectators in the venues as well. So much of society and life as we know it, Craig, is being reset at the moment. Is it time maybe to reset the Olympic and the Paralympic movement? You said the, the games go together, but for example, in Great Britain, you've got ParaGB, which is a separate entity to Team GB. And John and I have spoken on Great British Bosses to both organisations. There doesn't appear to be an appetite to merge, if you like. They have done that in America, though. Is that perhaps a model where maybe you could protect para-sport and the Paralympic movement going forward by merging these organisations a bit closer? I think we, uh, I get this question every week. Can you, merge <laughs> the, can, you, can you merge the Olympics and Paralympics? And I think if you were to merge both games you'd probably increase the cost of the games at a time when we are working hard with the IOC to reduce the overall cost of the games to the, to the host city and the host country. You'd also end up with this sport event that lasted probably four or five weeks without a break in it. Now, are you going to have a rights holder that's going to give five weeks of primetime airtime to you as a sport event? And also from an athletics point of view and a sport point of view, the Paralympics has evolved tremendously in, in recent years. But if the majority of the media, if you've got the option between reporting on an Olympic story and a Paralympic story, we're probably going to be second class, unfortunately. We're not going to be dominating the Olympic story at the moment. In maybe 20 years' time, it might be, the, might be a completely different picture. But at the moment, if we were to merge the events, you'd probably see less media coverage for the Paralympic Games. So at the moment, it makes sense to have both events separate and we can then maximise the media coverage for the Games globally because that coverage is so important, not just for the uh, communicating the athletic performances, but it's the performances that change attitudes towards disability around the world. So at the moment, both the IOC and the IPC are happy with having two games separately, but behind the scenes, we are working very, very closely on organising the games. So the teams are pretty much working hand in hand on a daily basis as we speak anyhow. You're listening to Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy. We're in conversation with Craig Spence, the IPC's Chief Brand 
uh, communications officers, the Paralympics should be taking place as we record in Tokyo. I take your point there on maybe not merging the, the Paralympics and the Olympics as an event, but as an organisation, and I hate to go back to, to Britain, people talk about Team GB, they don't talk about Para GB. And there is, I guess, in terms of that model and funding, some crossover there. Could those organisations in, in different countries work closer, perhaps, to, to save some money? Well, it's difficult for me to say because I'm not working for those organisations. What I do know is that in the US, it's a model that works. The US and Olympic uh, Paralympic Committee are one organisation and it works for them. But just because it works in the US doesn't mean it's a model that it works in every single country around the world. So it's a, it, you need to do it on a case-by-case -case basis. And if, if, the, if the British Olympic Association and the British Paralympic Association believe it works best for them at the moment being separate organisations, but collaborating on certain projects, then so be it. It's for them to decide rather than the IPC. Last one on this, Craig, because I know we want to talk about London 2012 and uh, everything that has gone before that. But your, our last guest on Great British Bosses was David Grevenberg from the Commonwealth Games Federation. He told us that the pandemic will change everything about staging multi-sport events. He told us that nothing is off the table in terms of the future staging of the Commonwealth Games. Is that similar in the corridors of power in the IOC and the IPC? Well, I think, first of all, I think COVID-19 is not just going to change the world of sport. It's going to change the world forever. Um, and we look, at the, we look at the whole of society and how it needs to evolve. And actually, I, I always say the world's basically been put on pause this year. And when we press play again, the world needs to be better because how the world was operating before the pandemic wasn't right. You had one billion persons with disabilities around the world who were excluded from society, despite the fact that they can all contribute as active citizens. So hopefully when society comes back to, I don't think it'll get back to normal, we'll call it the new normal, how society can really look at, like I mean, home working, persons with disabilities want to homework all the time because they can't get into their workplaces because the travel's bad. So hopefully society changes. Now in terms of sport events, to answer your question, yeah, I think sport events are gonna change, but what we can't do is give you the blueprint now because this situation is evolving on a daily basis. I mean, there's, there's talk of vaccines being available in, in January. Now, if vaccines come along, brilliant, fantastic, but there's no guarantee that they're gonna work. But it's pointless planning for something that we can't control at the moment. So what we need to do, bearing in mind we're only eight months into this pandemic, is control the controllables. And we need to focus on Tokyo 2020 and then Beijing 2022, which is six months later. And then we look at the further ahead and Paris. So we've got a busy, busy time. But yeah, I mean, the world as a whole, including sport events, is going to change forever. And at the moment, we've just got to accept that, not worry about it, and just embrace change. Talking about changing things forever, London 2012, that was a game changer, wasn't it, for the Paralympic movement in terms of the crowds that came out, the level of competition that we saw, everything about the London 2012 Paralympics worked, didn't it? Yeah, London 2012 was magical. Are, are we just saying that because we're all Brits? I don't yeah, what was the worldwide reaction? <laughs> I, think it's a, I, I think I agree with Michael, it's a worldwide reaction. So if you, um, if you go around the world and you talk about how should a Paralympics be organised or how should a Paralympic Games be broadcasted, everyone talks about London 2012 and Channel 4. Now, it was the first Games where we positioned Paralympic sport as high-performance sport, and that worked. You had, like, 
some amazing performances. Um, I think the world realized it was high performance sport when you'd had a man who'd competed at the Olympics three weeks previously, only winning one gold medal in three events. That's when the world realized, hang on a minute, everyone thought Oscar Pistorius was going to turn up at the Paralympics and walk away with three gold medals. He only won one gold medal. And I think that really opened people's eyes going, oh, yeah, this really is high performance. I mean, the, every commercial partner did TV commercials or billboards. I remember seeing this like 60 meter high billboard of Ellie Simmons on the side of a, build, uh, of a building. It was sensational. Channel 4 came up with this global benchmark now for how a Paralympic game should be broadcasted. Um, the metrics were superb. I mean, when I talk about proud achievements in my career, London 2012 is one of them. I mean, the sport changed one in three attitudes towards disability in Great Britain. That's 20 million people whose views changed. You can't do any marketing campaign in the world to change the views of 20, 20 million people. But six, I remember in 2018, we did some research. Six years on, there's now one million more persons with disabilities in employment in Great Britain. Now, the Paralympic Games will certainly have played a significant role in doing that because it changed the attitudes of so many people towards disability. So London was great, but bizarrely, in terms of metrics, Rio 2016 delivered as far more in terms of TV audience and such like. So London sent the benchmark, and now every organizing committee is, is trying to do better. And I, I, that's why I'm so devastated that Tokyo is not happening right now, because in my view, and it was difficult for me to say as a proud Brit, but I think Tokyo was going to blow everything out of the water in terms of crowds, TV audiences, performance, everything. Um, so that's why I'm so confident that our future is bright, despite the pandemic. I'm really pleased to hear you say that, that the viewing figures for Rio were so fantastic. Was, and maybe it's a little bit flippant to say, it, but was there a feeling at the time that Rio just about got away with it in terms of the, the staging and the logistics and the venues, et cetera? Well, got away with it is, a, is, is an understatement. I mean, we, we were within 24 hours of cancelling the Paralympics. I mean, wow. if for those people who have watched Rising Phoenix, you, you see the whole story played out there. But I remember taking a phone call from our chief executive at the time, Chavi Gonzalez. He, he was in Rio. I was in bed. He phoned me at 3 a.m. in the morning and said, where are you? And I'm like, I'm in bed. It's 3 a.m. And he went, oh, uh, when you go into the office tomorrow, can you write a PR plan for the cancellation of the Paralympics? We're probably going to need to announce within 24 hours. And I just completely froze and thought, where do I start with this? And then he was like, anyhow, good night. And I'm like, how do I get back to sleep now? Um, so that's how close we were. I was working on the strategy for the cancellation of the games. Now, because they, they basically run out of money, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, the organizing committee was just, they had no clue on finance. A, a good Paralympic Games comes from the leadership of the organizing committee. In London, we were so lucky that we had uh, Lord Sebastian Coe and Paul Dighton hugely committed to the Paralympic Games and saw the potential of the Paralympics. In Rio, we had Carlos Nuzman, who couldn't care less about the Paralympics. And that was hard for us to take. And therefore, there was no management of budgets, really, and, and there was no budget left over for the Paralympics. And it was an absolute catastrophe. But the Paralympic, we, we will never take no for an answer. That's the thing about the Paralympic movement, why it's grown so much. So we worked our backsides off to get the funding from the Brazilian government to get the games on. And actually, yes, we got away with it and we got the games on and we had to reduce a lot of the scope that we delivered for, for various people at the games. But the games were spectacular in the end. I mean, we had 2.1 million spectators. 
I think we sold a million tickets at one point in one week. Now there's very few sport events that sell a million tickets in a week. Um, and the TV audience reached a cumulative audience of 4.1 billion and London was 3.8 billion. So, so in terms of that, it was ter tremendous. And I think because of, I think a lot, a lot of people going into to Rio, Beijing, yeah, it's going to be a success because China's got all the money and they can put on a great show. London's always going to be a success because it's the home of the Paralympic movement. But Rio 2016, question mark. Rio 2016, running out of money, these games are going to be a disaster. But we got them on and we delivered and the, the athletic performance was sensational. And I think the fact that we delivered so well in Rio shows that we can deliver the games anywhere in the world now. And because we took no for an answer in the fact that the Paralympics was getting forgotten about in Rio, I think it sets a marker down to future organising committees that you can't mistreat us again. One of the other big challenges ahead of Rio was Russia. And I thought, and I said it at the time, the IPC led the way in banning Russia from competing. And the IOC didn't do that. That was their decision, obviously, following, of course, the famous McLaren report. At the time the president of the IPC, Sir Philip Craven, who you mentioned earlier, said the anti-doping system in Russia is broken, corrupted and entirely compromised. Is it any better now? Yes, it is. Really? Uh, yes, absolutely. In terms of the National Paralympic Committee, we, I'd probably say if I was to say what's my proudest moment in 10 years, I'd say our, our stance on Russia is that proud moment because we took a stand. We, 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 we said the rules are the rules and you're breaking the rules. And, and, and the leadership shown by Sir Philip uh, Chavi and the rest of the board during that period was sensational. And just a note before I go into your answer, the day the McLaren report came out regarding Russian doping is the same day that we found out from Rio that they'd run out of money for the Paralympics. So it was quite a day at the IPC headquarters. Um, Busy one. In terms of, since we suspended the IPC, uh, since we suspended the Russian Paralympic Committee, we put in place a massive program of improvements from them, uh, and they've delivered an all but two. Um, I think all but all but one. Sorry. Um, so they put in place a whole host of measures. I mean, the education they give athletes in terms of anti-doping and and everything that they're doing now is, in my view, best practice. Um, and, and proof that you can you can fix a broken system. Um, so, and, and, and I have to say, the Russian National Paralympic Committee, they really did engage with us. They could have taken their bat home and said, no, we're not going to do anything. And had they taken that approach, they'd still be suspended. But they came to the table and uh, have actively worked with the IPC to try putting in place a, a, a much more uh, better and robust system where we can have trust in the system now. And some people might be surprised, but it's sports, so they won't be probably, that the Paralympics gets cheats too. And, and powerlifting, like, like, like weightlifting, is, is particularly tarnished. And you, you're still catching people who are cheating. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. We do more tests these days. So if you test more people, you're going to get more positives. If you had no police force, you'd never have any crime. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the big things we've got is is we need to educate people within the Paralympic movement regarding, uh, regarding anti-doping. So the amount of cases we get where athletes just plead ignorance that they didn't know the substance contained a prohibited substance. So we've got to do a lot more on education. Um, that obviously comes at a cost. Um, and we just need to, to, to get the message out there that doping will not be tolerated in Paralympic sport. As Paralympic sport gets bigger, and the financial rewards on offer become bigger, 
you are, we are finding more and more athletes willing to take a risk to cheat to win a gold medal, but we'll hunt you down. I mean, we've, we've, we appointed a new anti-doping director a few years ago whose intelligent testing program has been sensational and, and in terms of target testing individuals or, or at-risk uh, sports or countries, and it's paying dividends so far. Just before we wrap up, Craig, and I know we've only got a couple of minutes left, but on the theme of education, do you think more can be done to teach the general public about the various classifications you have in parasport? Because sometimes as a viewer, a casual viewer, if you like, who maybe comes to parasport once every four years, that can be quite confusing. Yeah, it can be very, very confusing um, classification. But I think people freak out a little bit when they see all the classifications you don't freak out when you when you watch the sport of boxing another sport that has a classification system they do they do they class their athletes by weight uh, and no one seems to have an issue with it now it's probably because we've got 22 sports in the summer games and 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 not different weight divisions but different groupings of athletes so um we need to do more uh to to educate people about the classifications we can't do it alone we and we're, we're looking at a program that we can uh, implement together with our broadcast partners and media partners ahead of future games so that people become more familiar with classifications and understand why we group certain athletes together. And for the athletes themselves, there are some frustrations. Sometimes athletes might miss out because they are classified differently. Some athletes might feel they have an advantage or an, a disadvantage. Do you have sympathy with that group of people as well? I think, I mean, one, one key thing is no human body is the same. Um, in the same way that in boxing, not every athlete weighs the same amount. So in, 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 in each classification band, you could say you, you will have an athlete who's at the top and someone who's at the bottom. Now, obviously, if, if, if the only way to, to, to try lessen that difference is to introduce more classifications. And then you end up with more medal events. And that's when you end up with races with two or three athletes. So um, we, we, we've got to do a lot more, not just educating the public on classification, but also the athletes, because if the athletes aren't fully understanding the system, then there's no hope for the public. So what we've got to do is work harder to educate the athletes about uh, why classification's there, how we group people, and how we can take it forward. And to finish, Rising Phoenix. What a way to finish, but what a story to tell. Yeah, I mean, the global reaction to Rising Phoenix is sensational. I mean, uh, it's the brainchild of a guy called Greg Nugent. Uh, Greg was the marketing and culture director for London 2012. Uh, Greg's a good mate of mine, despite the fact that he's a Nottingham Forest fan. <laughs> and, uh, seven years ago, he came to me, we in a pub in the Peak District, and he said, I've got this idea. And we've worked on it seven years. Two years ago, he said, right, let's do it. He showed me a teaser for that movie. It made me cry two years ago. And then this this production is just sensational telling the stories of nine athletes the success of london 2012 the jeopardy and then the success of rio 2016 but what i love in the film is it we tell the world about the, the vision of dr ludwig gutman i mean everyone knows dr king's vision for but very few people know dr gutman's vision and his vision was to to make every person with a disability an active citizen again and that's why the paralympic movement comes from so yeah, the global response has been tremendous. You've got President Macron of France tweeting about it. You've got David Beckham even direct messaging some of our athletes now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's completely blown us away. And it's been so important for us with the, with the postponement of the Paralympics this year to have something that fills 
the void that's left by the games not taking place. So, yeah, it's it's blown us away. Um, and, yeah, there's been a lot of tears shed in the last few weeks with tears of pride at, at what's been delivered there. Thank you so much, Craig Spence, the IPC's Chief Brand and Communications Officer, for giving us the encouragement that Tokyo 2020 will happen next year. And thanks for talking to anything but footy's great British bosses. Great, thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.